welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, I always begin my uh, talks when I have occasion to do this uh, with the third step prayer. So, uh, after a moment of silence for all who care to please join me in the third step prayer. Prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Thank you. Well, good evening, good morning, and hello. It's a great uh, privilege to be a part of this global internet uh, marathon. My name is Gary and I'm a recovering sexaholic sober since March 12, 2003. I really thank everybody who's given so much of their time, energy and effort to making this uh, event possible. And especially to those who have the awesome technical skills that have just been over the top skills that are way beyond my understanding, but for which I'm uh, very glad uh, uh, as they make this event possible. As I said, I always start an event like this with the third step prayer because I think it's really important for me to use it to calm myself, to get in sight the presence of God, to try to put my will out of the picture and free it from that self-will and to step out of the way so whatever God intends to happen tonight during the course of this time we spend together will happen without me messing it up. So I thank those of you who uh, joined me in that prayer too. Also, I try to remember at the outset of a talk like this, an admonition, at least I consider an admonition from uh, how from uh, a vision for you that says we realize we know only a little. Well, read that. I realize I know only a little. The topic I've chosen to speak on tonight is letting go of old ideas. Of course, this comes from the chapter, How It Works, a big book. Some of us have tried to hold on to old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. Now, my ego-based instinct would be to have a out-of-my-head kind of lecture about what those words mean and what was the author thinking, what you ought to do, and blah, and blah, and blah. That would be useless, pointless, and uh, something I did not want to do. In reality, all I have to share with you is the truth of my own experience. And so I will share from my own experience using the form, formula, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And I hope in that manner that I bring to light some of the old ideas that I needed to let go of, and some of the new ideas I've found along this path. I doubt the time will permit me to uh, cover all of them. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that I haven't even begun to encounter all of them. As every day, some old idea of mine seems to come to the test. And I realize that uh, 
there's a call here to let that go and try a new way. So I do hope also that before we close our session today, that some of you might share from your own experience old ideas that you've let go of and new ideas that you've embraced. I think though to understand my old ideas it is really good to, to know where I'm coming from. And so I am going to share my story with you. Uh, in a rather abbreviated, but not entirely abbreviated uh, fashion. And uh, so it starts with, I was born 76 years ago. <laughs> oh my, 76 years ago. And I was born into a family that was struggling with poverty. I don't think the struggle would have been nearly as difficult had it not been for alcoholism and domestic violence that was a part of our lives. In my family, I was sexually abused over a period of some years, which was a difficult uh, thing. But part of my recovery has been to come to realize that, that I am no longer a victim. And so I choose not to discuss that to any extent. I simply acknowledge it and, and move on. But I did find through those days that I could use dissociative skills and uh, fantasy as a way to escape what was happening to and around me. And uh, as my therapy revealed, there were some survival skills that it served me well for, but uh, fantasy became a big part of my life over time and it did not serve me well at all. So it was certainly something I needed to let go of. But by age eight, I had become, began using masturbation as a, this is pre-puberty, as a way of calming myself, helping myself to sleep, and uh, making the pain I was feeling and living seem to disappear. But then, of course, puberty came along and masturbation seemed to take on a life of its own, very quickly becoming habitual. During these years, it was important to my family, to, 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 my, to my mother, to the children the family raised in our Catholic faith. But I'm grateful for that today. But back in those years, and I'm talking the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, one of the teachings of my church was that uh, masturbation was a mortal sin for which one is uh, condemned to eternal damnation forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, one didn't have to be a genius to know that wasn't really a very good, good trade and that really I ought to stop. And so from the youngest years, I wanted to stop. I wanted to stop when I was a little boy and I couldn't stop. And I prayed that God would help me stop, and I couldn't stop. I prayed that God would change the things in my family life, and it didn't seem to change. So I sort of gave up on God to a big extent, thinking that he'd given up on me. And uh, by age 17, I remember the day so clearly, I was going to a Catholic high school, and we were having a school mass, a religious service. It was time to, uh, as we would do, uh, receive communion. And one is supposed to be in a state of grace to do that. And of course I wasn't, but I'd gotten up from my seat and started to walk towards the, to the altar. And I realized I couldn't do that. And with all great sense of embarrassment, because I knew the other boys would know why I was turning around, went back to my seat. But I thought, this is it, this is it. I'm consigned to a life of masturbation. That's just the way it is. And I really try, I really didn't try to stop that anymore. I didn't like it. I just thought it was my uh, fate. And so uh, on it went. In, in those years too, I also realized early on that uh, I was a good student, that I enjoyed uh, studying, that uh, uh, learning would be something that I could do. And I 
thought that, well, I'll get well educated. That would be my path out of the circumstances that I find myself in. So, so after high school, I was off to college and then professional school. And uh, throughout those years, I was really dedicated to my studies and I was also working to meet my expenses. So I didn't have a social life. I was, I was quite a loner. And with loner and masturbation, they seemed to go together for me and it just sort of stood me and, and that's, that's how I got on. Uh, but you know, my habit was fed by fantasy. I'd been living in fantasy, using fantasy for, for years by then. And so I would uh, store images in my brain of uh, attractive people I'd see on campus and then use them later, both men and women. While I was uh, in professional school, a classmate introduced me to his wife's best friend, uh, the woman who ultimately became my wife. She has been my wife now for over 51 years. I, I was smitten, that's an old fashioned word, but I was smitten. I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe that someone could have any interest in me, but here I found a person who did. And so we dated, always chastely, we married after two years. The point about that that's important in my story really is that I lacked the integrity, I lacked the courage to tell her about myself. I didn't tell her anything. I kept it, it was my secret. It was unspeakable. And I just thought, well, as we hear so often in these rooms, that marriage will take care of that and the masturbation will disappear and you know, turning a new page, everything's gonna change. I'm getting out of school, I've got a new life, I've got a new profession, I've got a wife, everything's gonna be new. The geographic cure times to the 10th degree, I would say maybe, but we know about geographic cures. However, our marriage got off to a good start. And really over time, it has been a good marriage, obviously with challenges, but, but we are we're happy young people. Uh, but early in the marriage, and I would say within the later part of the first year, I was back to my old habit with masturbation, always keeping a secret. For, for me, that was an unspeakable thing. I could not imagine putting it in words and uh, talking about it. So uh, I just did that. And three years into the marriage, uh, so-called adult bookstores, really porn shops started showing up in my community. And uh, it uh, was enticing to me. I'd never used porn, never been exposed to porn. And I had a difficulty because I wanted to, I wanted to see what that was all about. But I was also uh, in law enforcement as a prosecutor. And uh, I knew that those places were being studied by my office because at that time that might have been some illegality. But finally, I got up the nerve and really it was the stupidity to cross the threshold into one of those places. And my initial action was one of revulsion. I, I was just, just sort of stunned and, and fled almost immediately and said, never again, never again, never again. But six months later, I was back. And over time, I was back, and I was back, and I was back. The time between intervals was shorter and shorter and shorter until it became almost a daily kind of thing that I would, would escape to. At the same time, though, I was living a very respectable period in life. My family life looked very good. I was very engaged in my children's activities. Uh, my wife was also professional and we shared a professional interest. I was engaged in community activity. I had a good reputation. I was thought well of, you know, but I was living in this darkness and the darkness was getting darker and darker. Over time, I'd become aware of men having anonymous encounters with other men in those places. Oh, at first that scared me, but it also been part of my fantasy life. And over time, uh, I 
crossed that boundary. And I became one of those men who would never have thought it, but I became one of those men. Worse, I began to look for such encounters in parks and public places and streets. All the boundaries seemed to have fallen away. This while I was living another life that looked respectable, trying to juggle the balls of these two different lives. And there was a part of me, obviously, that was getting a hit off it. So there was a part of me that wanted it, but I really hated it. And I tried all kinds of strategies of my own design, of my own design. So they were destined to fail and it never worked. Uh, I'd make all kinds of promises to myself that I could never keep. The one thing I wouldn't do was tell on myself or ask for help. Shame, fear, maybe the addiction, the payoff I was getting, whatever it was, kept me from it. But ultimately, the double life, juggling the double life became just too much for me. And uh, I made a couple of feeble attempts on my life, real feeble attempts. I suppose one would say they were cries for help, except I wouldn't say what I needed help with. I wouldn't talk. And so they're written off as well, not serious. And he's just overworked. He does too much for others. He doesn't have enough leisure time. And poor, poor Gary. Poor Gary. Mm, not poor Gary in a real sense. But in another real sense, poor Gary. But these things worried me because I'd had a preoccupation with uh, taking my life since I was 14. And I had sort of an intellectual or romantic uh, sense of that. And it scared me. So I uh, decided I had to do something. I didn't want to live the way I was living. I was 40 years old at that point. I didn't want to live that way with the uh, out of control sexual behavior on their side of 40. And so I started seeing a psychiatrist for help. And uh, I told him right away what was going on. He pleaded with me to bring my wife in the picture and tell her that she could be an asset, she could be a help. But I didn't have the courage. I thought what I was doing was just so unspeakable. I just couldn't imagine uh, sharing with her. An interesting thing about that, uh, this was back in 1985, the uh, psychiatrist that came to his office one day and he handed me a stack of materials on top of it was a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and several workbooks that were used in the Alcoholic Treatment Center. And he said, I don't know, Gary, but he says, I listened to you. It sounds like alcoholism. He says, it sounds just like the fellow who can't quit drinking. He didn't know about sex addiction. It wasn't uh, well known. It wasn't thought of. It wasn't it certainly wasn't in the professional literature at that time. Uh, this fellowship was quite young, and the other fellowships were quite young. But he just heard in what I was sharing something that uh, suggested that uh, this is what the problem really was. So I, I looked at that literature, but I, I, I couldn't access it. I couldn't make sense of it, and and it didn't didn't really come to uh, to help me in any way. But uh, although therapy didn't get me sober, it did help me with uh, the child sexual abuse because I then began talking about that. And after quite a long period of therapy, uh, got quite a bit of help. Also, shortly, really, really into the same period of time, I learned about a small group of men that were gathering, meeting as an SAA group. And uh, so I made arrangements to connect with those fellows. And they were good men, but... There, there, there was no illusion about it. They, they didn't claim to be working a step. They weren't working steps. They weren't working a program. It was sort of a support group where there was support and encouragement, uh, but uh, it, it wasn't getting me sober either. And, and again, it was a secret. I couldn't tell my wife what I was doing. Uh, and, and so what finally happened, uh, life is out of control. Any of my efforts to stop, it failed. So what did God have in mind for me? Well, I think God did have this in mind for me because one day I was arrested. I was arrested by uh, undercover police officers who observed me masturbating 
uh, to pornography in an adult shop and charged with disorderly conduct. Uh, so an interesting thing about that, I still sort of ponder about this, but as I was uh, bonding out from the police station and, and getting ready to leave, I thanked the police officer who arrested me and said something good would come of this. Because somehow I knew something had changed, but <laughs> it wasn't like I was going to run home and tell my wife, because I surely didn't. Uh, what I did was I went to the local prosecutor's office. Um, this was a, in another county nearby. And see if I could manage it, control it, and make it go away, and keep it a secret. But because I was a, a public figure in our community, uh, the uh, local newspaper had a different idea. And so it woke up to Sunday morning, front page story, rather lurid story about uh, what had happened and the surrounding circumstances. And I hadn't seen that as the something good coming out of my arrest, but that, that smashed my double life. I couldn't give up my double life. That took it. And so there was something really good in that. I went away for treatment for sexual addiction. And the very neat thing about that is I met a young fellow there who had come from California and from Simi Valley, California. And before he had left for treatment center, he had heard about this program, this 12-step program called Sexaholics Anonymous. And he told me about it. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds like something I need to check out. And what he told me was really something was they were going to have their summer convention in Milwaukee a few hours from my home a few weeks after I got out of treatment. So my wife and I went, uh, she to the S and me to S, the SA group. And I'll tell you, I will never forget the feeling I had that weekend walking into those rooms. First of all, people were laughing and happy and joyous. They were having a good time. And then I was hearing stories. I, I, I heard the story of one of our uh, one that we <laughs> called upon a lot, RBA, and RBA's story was like mine in a lot of ways, and he told his story telling mine, and I knew that what those people had and what they were sharing was something I had to have, and I wanted it. And so uh, I returned home, and I knew that, number one, I had no other option but to stop, and that the only way I would be able to stop is if I had SA in my life and uh, partners in recovery. And so I spoke to my uh, priest and uh, was led to another man. And we started an SA group, the two of us. And over time, we had other people come along. Uh, but this was a, uh, a new idea. Certainly, the old idea here was that I couldn't ask for help. And uh, here I was going to ask for help, that I was a loner. Here, I was going to join up with partners in recovery, other men who wanted sobriety and who are willing to uh, uh, go after my work in the common solution of SA. So in SA now, uh, working these steps, what other old ideas uh, did I have to look at? Well, uh, right away, the first one, and I started looking at this in therapy and along the way, but I'd always considered myself to be really a very bad person. And all of I thought of myself quite evil because I was very successful in getting people to think well of me when I was living a very, very, very dark life. And I thought nothing could be more evil than to make people think you're a sainted one when, when you're living so badly. But as long as I felt I was such a bad person, I didn't have any reservoir of, of good to call upon to help me get out of that. And so it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I just continued in, in that state. 
But I came to this program and, and I learned about illness and uh, the idea that, you know, I wasn't a bad person trying to become good, but as we say, a sick person trying to get well. And then the doctor's opinion told me something more about what that sickness was. And it really made sense to me, an allergy, an allergy to lust, because I think of, like I have an allergy to poison ivy. I mean, if I get near it, I don't have to touch it, I break out. And I was thinking, I get near lust, I get near the sexual temptation, and I'm gone. I'm just gone. And I don't have any defense against it, it seems. And so the idea that there is an allergy here uh, suggested to me that there was a, a treatment for it and I wouldn't have to uh, continue like that. So that was clearly a new idea that I was had an illness, that there was a treatment. The treatment was the 12, sex, 12 steps, worked and lived in a fellowship of, with partners in recovery, and that there was a, a, there was recovery was possible, you know? And uh, that was a huge, huge idea. In our white book, we stop, talk about step zero, which says we participate in the fellowship of the program. Well, again, I'd been pretty much a loner in my life, doing everything by myself. I'd never joined team sports. I was a bicyclist, but I bicycled alone. I never grouped up with people to ride bike. I was a swimmer, but I refused to join swim teams. I always swam alone. I was always a loner. I don't know. I think in some ways I didn't trust people. I was afraid to let people get close to me. And uh, now I had to do something different. I had to do something different. I had to participate in a fellowship of the program. And what a difference that's made to have people in my life who work this common solution around a common understanding of what it means to be sexually sober. Over time, it's changed everything. But that is, that is a new way of living and a new way of thinking that I would never let go of now. Today, I have other challenges. And I'm just, just very briefly, my wife has Parkinson's. Uh, there are a lot of difficulties. Today, I know how to ask for help. I wouldn't have known how to ask for help before. I wouldn't have been willing to ask for help, but other things happen in my life and I, I can get help. Step one, what a new idea, powerlessness. Me, me, me. Oh no, I, I really couldn't, couldn't buy that. You know, And I, I subscribed to the line in the, the 12 and 12, who cares to admit complete defeat? I sure didn't. And when, when I really, you know, I'd gone through, I'd do some work with psychiatrists. I'd gone through treatment. Uh, I'd, I'd heard about this kind of stuff, but I really wasn't challenged by it until I had to work step one. And then I was challenged by it. And I thought, uh, well, I don't know. But in my work life, what I did for my kind of work was I gathered evidence. I, I got to prove with dry case, you got to prove point A, point B, point C. Well, you get evidence that proves point A, you get evidence that proves point B. And so I gathered the evidence of my life and put it all together, saw the boundaries crossed, the progression of the disease, the attempts to stop that failed. And I was left with no alternative, let's say, yeah, to admit, to admit these facts prove I'm powerless. That was the beginning, but there's another big thing that's important, and it took me, took me quite a while to make the next step, but I had to accept it. I had to accept it. The, the admitting it was up in my head, up in my head. These facts prove this. That's my job. That's what I did. I proved something. But accepting it, that had to be in my gut, and then I had to lodge in my heart. I had to be willing to say, yeah, Gary, this is true about you. This is true about you. Now, is there anything you can do about it?
Well, we'll come to step two. Came to believe that power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. As I said, I'd left God or he'd left me when I was a youngster. I didn't really, I went through the motions of my faith, but I'd never ever thought that I could have a relationship with God because I thought it was my responsibility to fix myself. When I was clean, when I was pure, when I was holy, I could have a relationship with God. That was what I believed. I didn't think that so much for you. There was a little bit of this uh, terminal uniqueness going on. And I thought, well, God will help you, but not me so much. But then listening to other people, really I was listening to the stories of other people, seeing the experience of other people, also embracing my own faith experiences and listening uh, to witnesses within my faith, that I came to realize that uh, it was, I was never going to be good enough for God's love. That was never going to happen. The new idea, and it's not a new idea, but it was a new idea in my head, is that, you know, God doesn't love me. God doesn't restore me to sanity because I'm good. He loves me because he's good. A loving God is he reveals himself in our group conscience, a loving God because he's good. That's just a big idea to me that I could, I could trust this God who loves me. And I could give my life over in a way that I hadn't been able to. And so I, I did come to believe this. And the sanity part, I never thought of myself as insane. I mean, I thought that was sort of ridiculous. Again, look at the evidence. Uh, it became clear that in my sexaholic life and then in other parts of my life that there was certainly uh, plenty of evidence of insanity. Uh, and just to give an example, because I keep this example in my mind, if I ever think that I can get out and go back out there and be okay, I just keep this example in my mind about how insane I was. There was an occasion when I was in the midst of my disease and terrible circumstances. I was out cruising the streets in my car. I had an encounter uh, with a couple of people I was talking to. And before I knew it, they had my head out the window of my car and a knife at my throat. And I was quivering and shaking, I was a wreck. And somehow I was able to get my elbow on my horn and honk my horn and to use my body against the car door and throw them off kilter where the horn scared them. But I was scared. I drove home about four miles to my house, shaking. I put up my garage door. I pulled the garage, the car into the garage. I sat there, very brief time. I backed the car out of the garage, put the door down and was right back on the streets. Utter insanity, utter insanity. I, I never forget that because at step two, I needed, I needed to be restored to sanity. And today, I think I, I, think I sort of pretty much am. But uh, that, was, that was new thinking that I had to uh, be restored to sanity. And this idea that uh, I could have a new life restored by my higher power, if... If, step three, I choose to surrender my will in my life for the care of God. Well, I hadn't wanted to surrender anything to anybody ever in my life. But uh, again, I'd already done step two. I'd found that God loved me. That wasn't that hard of a choice to say, well, that'd be a good, that'd be a good deal. That'd be a good bet to surrender to God. Now, it doesn't mean it comes easy because I'm a self-willed person. That's why I go to third step prayer all the time because I get in bondage myself just like that. But I know that when I call God in, and I use this two-word prayer, I use this two-word prayer all the time. I heard this from a young fellow at an essay convention in 19, I think it was 94 in uh, 
Baltimore. This fellow was talking to, he was going down the street and he saw an attractive person coming toward him. Instead of drinking in that person's image, he would say two words, come in. Two words, come in, asking for the presence of God. And just in that time, he would go by the street, she would pass, he wouldn't have to swivel his head, he'd be gone, he'd be off, she'd be gone, he'd be free. And I've thought ever since, what a powerful prayer. I used that all the time. I never thought God was near to me for all those years. I thought I was alone, but I was never alone. I'm not alone today. I can ask him into whatever situation is in my life. And so the third step prayer, the third step is a step of very appealing to me. I know we're running short on time. There's two other things I want to touch about, a couple old ideas. And I mentioned one in, one in the outset here. I, I take it away from my childhood, the my experiences, and, uh, and I think reasonably accepted the label that I was a victim because by ordinary parlance, I was victimized uh, in both a physical and, uh, okay, sexual, 10 minutes, thank you. I was victimized uh, uh, both physically and sexually as a child. And so that was a victim, but... I came to realize, and over time, that I had used uh, the status of a victim to justify myself doing pretty much whatever I wanted. Some of it was conscious and some of it was a subconscious kind of thing. And what exposed that to me, what brought about this new way of thinking about my being a victim was the fourth and fifth step. Because when I had to look at my own stuff, I had to look at my own stuff, it began to let me see other people more clearly and their circumstances. And I could see that uh, by using that I had victimized people, not sexually, thanks be to God, I, I hadn't done that. Uh, well, not children, other adults. I, I take it using pornography, I've victimized somebody because I've sort of confirmed them in, in their behavior, you know, pornography, et cetera. So, uh, or acting out with another person, I've confirmed it you know, confirm them in, in, in their illness too. So that's making someone a victim, but, but thanks be God, not children. But uh, when I, when I came to accept that, you know, I've made other victims in, in other ways, I have to be responsible for that. As long as I think I'm a victim, I've been evading responsibility. I've been evading responsibility. So the fourth and fifth step showed me that if I was going to be free of my stuff, I had to free other people, just let it go. And it's very important. My recovery changed by leaps and bounds when I got out of the bondage of being a victim and when I took responsibility. When I knew that uh, the reason I was had been doing the behaviors I'd been doing, the reason I would be in a porn shop, the reason I'd be with a... Uh, anonymous person I didn't know and in some sexual encounter was not because of what happened to me as a child. It was because what I was doing that day, the choices I had made that put me in that position. Now, it, it's complicated, but that's the real nuts and bolts of it right there. And I had to take responsibility for that. I started taking responsibility when I was no longer a victim. And that just cleared my thinking for me. So it was a very important way of uh, a new way of thinking for me that really changed my behavior. I really want to, uh, I want to sort of pull through here towards uh, step 12. Uh, 
And the new way of thinking that came out of that, out of the whole fellowship of Sexaholics Anonymous, we have our promise after step one that we'll not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Well, I, I, I just could not imagine that. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> Close the door on that, burn the newspapers, you know, uh, purge the files, whatever. But uh, don't let that exist anywhere. Don't let anybody know. And uh, my new way of thinking about that really, really came to life from one line in the AA literature, the AA big book, that just almost brings me to tears when I think about it. It says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. How could that be? <laughs> You heard something of that dark past. How could that be the greatest possession I have? But then it says, the key to life and happiness for others. You know, we, we prayed that third step prayer, you know, take away my difficulties that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help. Those I would help. What do I have to help them with? I have my dark past. Yes, I have my dark past. Oh my goodness. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. What a blessing. And that's the thing, it's a blessing because if I just had that dark past, it would just be a, a big boulder in my life, a big, ugly, ugly, ugly boulder. Worst boulder you've ever seen. You haven't even seen that boulder that ugly yet. But it'd be, that's what it'd be. And it'd be weighing me down. It'd be back there like a shadow cast over my life, no matter how free I got, no matter how sober I was. It would be there, by gosh. And that's the big truth at me. But God says, he can take this. He can put it like manure in other people's lives. And new life brings up from it. And in that process, he blesses me. He says, Gary, my good and faithful servant, you didn't know. You didn't know in all those years that all of that went on, that I would someday say, come back to me. Come back to me. Here's a fellowship of recovery. Here's a vehicle by which you can use that. You can give life to somebody else. They can give life to somebody else. And they can give life to somebody else. And people can be free. What a new way of thinking. Oh, it's more than a new way of thinking. That, that, that's not even fair. It's just, what a blessing. What a blessing. So, SA has given me more than I could ever imagine in my life. You know, they say, how long do I have to come to this program? And the answer, of course, is, well, until you want to until you want to, then you don't have to. I want to keep coming back. I want to keep coming back. And I'm glad I had a chance to be with you here tonight. And I'd love to hear whatever you might share about the old ideas you've let go, and the new ideas you've discovered. Thanks for letting me share it. I'll be glad to take questions or converse with you. Thank you, Dennis. Oh, thank you so much, Gary. That was so powerful. Oh my gosh. All right, everybody. Well, if you'd like, you can um, enter some questions into the chat. Uh, either got a little Q&A chat. And if you want to ask questions about new ideas, 
that you've experienced or if you want to ask uh, Gary a question about recovery, any part of it, any of the steps, what you're going through, just go ahead and click on uh, the link there and you're uh, welcome to ask those questions. Um, not sure that first question is... Um, It says, Gary, good night. My name is Adi. Was difficult for you finding this defect, Sexaholics Anonymous? So I guess they're asking the acceptance of that part is what I'm guessing. I'm not understanding. Yeah, let acceptance. me acceptance. Yeah, it's if if they could if that individual could please reword that. Um, maybe it'd be it did kind of garble up there. That would be helpful for us. Gary, I hear you mention a past Christian slash religious tradition. Bringing in the topic of old ideas, how did you cross the threshold of step three in forgetting what you knew about God and embraced a new idea of who God may be to you now and then? Question mark. For when I'm currently on step, for me, I'm currently on step three, and I have to forget my old ways when it comes to God and trying to gain my own conception but how is where I'm, but that is where I'm at. Do you know what, understand the question there? Well, a little bit. You know, I used to take uh, exception to the language, God, as you understand him. I used to think, well, wait, there's a whole tradition. There's a whole literature, more than a literature of, about God. And, and uh, I need to go to all these other fathers, all these other, all these other repositories. And then it came to me some years back in, in this program that when I'm in my in church worshiping, everybody around me has their own conception of, of the God we're worshiping. Although we share the same liturgy, we share the same uh, books, we share the same tradition. But when it right comes right down to us, our relationship with God is personal. And we each, that's, it's unique to each of us. So it is God as, we, as I understand, God as you understand. And I didn't have to scuttle everything I thought I'd heard about God in the past. There's some of it that I was able to just accept and say, yeah, it makes sense to me. Because I do believe that the solution to our problem, our sexaholic problem, and what the 12 steps really get to, the spiritual awakening is awakening to love. That's what it is. That's what it is. And I believe that that's awakening to God, which is awakening to love. And so that's what the God who loves me because he's good wants me to love people because they're good. And uh, I found that I can take uh, my faith life and my 12-step life are congruent. You know, there's nothing disparate, disparate about them. They work together. And yours can too, and, they can, and yours can be very, very different from mine. But it can be as equally valid and powerful and transformative for you as mine is for me. And we can both get there through using these same 12 steps. That's my thought. Thank you, Gary. Um, what are some of the challenges uh, what have some of what have been some of your challenges in letting go of some of your old ideas? 
Well, they were comfortable. <laughs> they were comfortable. Uh, you know, I'd had them for a long time. And uh, I liked, well, you know, that first idea, uh, the new idea that I'm powerless, the, there's the biggie. I liked having control. You know, in in my work life uh, as as a uh, trial lawyer, and the, the, the it, that was all. That's what I did. I tried to have control of the courtroom. I didn't want people to look at the judge for being the person who has control of that courtroom. I wouldn't look at me. I didn't want to look at their attorney. I wouldn't look at me. I didn't want to think the jury had control. I want to look at me. And I I delude myself to thinking that I think I'm so clever. I'm so smart that I have this. Of course, it was delusional. Everybody else wanted the same thing. They wanted to control. And that's why it's so important to me about this third step, surrendering over to God. I'm responsible for my input. I'm responsible for doing the very best I can do in this in this talk and sharing with you tonight, in that kind of work, in caring for my wife. But uh, outcomes is God's business. I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't have any realm there. I don't have any control there. I don't have any power there. I can put my input. And so, uh, so that old idea, uh, it's really, it's really helpful. I was telling my wife uh, years back when I was in the program about this input output thing. And so I said, someday when I try a case, I try to do my very best. I prepare well. I think I know the facts. I think I know the law. I try the case, but I let go of the outcome. And she said to me, you better never let your clients hear that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, you know, life is interesting, but, uh, uh, that that was the biggest one for me to deal with, I think. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, when you came to the realization that your behavior today wasn't because of your abuse, but because of the choice you make today, can you talk about that realization and how that changed your immediate behavior? Well, first of all, I came to that uh, conclusion pretty far along the path of the 12 steps. And so my sexual acting out behavior had changed in that I wasn't acting out anymore, but my mindset about it, well, my mindset about being a sexaholic was what was problematic because there were times that I would think I wouldn't be this, I wouldn't have the dark past that dark past, I told you, is such a wonderful blessing. <laughs> but I wouldn't have that dark past if this hadn't happened to me. And I was robbed of my childhood and all of that. And there may be some aspect of truth to that. But I'm 76 years old. I was 56 years old. I was 46 years old. I was 36 years old. I had to take responsibility. And I was using that, that victim thing to just sort of let me do what I wanted to do and uh, sort of mindlessly. And so, uh, but the way it frees me today is, not only does it make me responsible, but I have, it's, this would be strange to say, but I have a heart for the people who hurt me mm. that I never had before. And I don't know that I ever would have had if I hadn't been a sexaholic in recovery. Yeah. And I have a heart for those people. And uh, I think of them, they're deceased. And, I, and I, I pray, not for one of them, but or to one of them, who I feel is certainly in God's loving embrace. Powerful. Dad? Um, thanks, Gary. Uh, how do I let go and forgive 
abuse from my childhood because that's a big part of the, my character defects today. Yeah. I won't say that it's easy because it isn't. And uh, I did allude to the fact that uh, in when I was having psychiatric counseling and that didn't help really with the sex addiction that we began to deal with my sexual abuse history. And, uh, you know, I just had to, to tell you, to be truthful with you, that therapy went on for over 20 years. So I'm not being cavalier when I say let go of being a, the label of a victim because I couldn't do it. And, uh, and I couldn't do it for the longest, longest, longest time. And therapy didn't uh, really, it didn't, I didn't let go entirely in therapy, but it prepared me for what I discovered in these steps, what I discovered in my new way of living to do that. But I, I pray for the person to answer that question, that you'll be patient with yourself, that you will love yourself, that you will find supportive people who can help you on your journey of finding freedom from the harm, the injury, the memory, and you can have a life uh, no longer burdened by that. Mm. I'm sorry, I don't have an easy answer. Yeah. Um, Gary, did you have any anxiety about getting married when you were younger, struggling with this addiction and shame? I did. I did. And uh, I didn't imagine that I ever would be married. I didn't think I was married to material. I thought I was pretty damaged goods. And so <laughs> when this woman took an interest in me, I was quite, uh, quite shocked. Uh, and it was really quite wonderful. And it has been wonderful. But as I say, uh, I uh, wasn't honest with her. You know, we, we met. We met literally on a blind date set up by a friend. And I've, we've, we've talked in these later years about what a blind date it was and how I kept the blinders in place for 20 years. And so, you know, I think probably if truth is told, I kept my mouth shut because I got what I wanted. You know, no, no nothing noble about it nothing noble about it i had this opportunity and we, we have two children two sons we have grandchildren we have oh god has been good to me that's all i can say but yeah i had a lot of misgivings about my capacity to be a marital partner and to be a faithful partner and i was not a faithful partner as it turned out to be so i was i was i was hesitant but i Oh, I don't like saying this, but I think it's true. I did, what I, I did what I did to get what I wanted. And that's not a very noble thought. But I also said that uh, I felt that I love this person. And I felt this was the right thing to do. So it's complicated. But uh, I, I think actually, I think love was the basis of it. Love cripple, yes. But love cripples can love crippledly, but we can love. And our love can be brought to great good by our God. And so that's what I trust in the end, that this love cripple 
who was not honest with my wife before our marriage, was loved into a good marriage by God and blessed by God and blessed by a loving, patient wife who I get to serve now and to care for in these difficult days of Parkinson's disease. Mm. So, but that's a blessing too. That's a blessing in my life too. The other day I was frustrated about something and I was cleaning up some mess related to the whole picture. And I said to myself, Gary, you get to do this. Aren't you fortunate? Mm-hmm. And I am. So much is about attitude. Thank you. Wow. Very powerful. I, I wanted a normal life and I thought I would too, that the marriage would solve my problem. And I like you found out differently. Um, how did you accept and or walk through God's silence to your prayer for help when you wanted to stop at such a young age? Well, I didn't accept it. I just, I shut down. I just gave up on him. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I think back about this. There, there's some things, there's a little bit of sadness to some of it, but to some, some uh, in the time period when I grew up, there was this thing of uh, you're supposed to suffer and offer up your suffering and you're offering up your suffering to God to be blessed back by it. Well, maybe that's what he does with our sexualism, but I used to do strange things. I used to pray standing on one foot. This is a little boy, six, seven years old, stand on one foot, have my arms extended, do the suffering prayer, asking God to come and change things, to bring my alcoholic mother home and to bring her home without another man. And that wouldn't happen. And over and over. So, so things like that. I don't really know what the question was anymore. <laughs> but I yeah, didn't know. Yeah. What do we hold on? Why do we hold on to lust even when we won't to let it, want to let it go? Why do we hold on to lust even when we want to let it go? Well, the one thing I've uh, come to uh, think is important to recognize is there's a payoff you know you know we get a chemically induced payoff we get a high we have a physiological release to it and we become dependent on that and then the professionals who treat addiction regard this as as much a drug addiction as a behavioral addiction in terms of the brain chemistry that's involved in the brain chemicals we flood ourselves with and so I see now today that uh, there were times when I wanted to quit, but I would get that rush. I would, I, I, I would, I would get the idea. I would get the idea unless it enticed me. And then you start on the pursuit, and there was a rush. Everything changed. And so I think that's a big part of it. I think it's more complicated than that, but I think that's a big part of it. That's why we had to go through withdrawal to get sober. We don't talk about withdrawal enough in this program, but there is a literal physical withdrawal that we have to go through. The first 11 days I was in treatment, I went through a gosh, awful withdrawal. On the 12th day, they told me if things don't change, they thought they were going to put me in a locked unit because I was just crazy. Well, a few days later, things broke and got better. But that drug addiction is part of it. And just like the actual drug addict who puts that needle in his vein and doesn't want to and knows the, the crap that's in his life because of it, can't resist the hit that's coming. And I think for some of us that uh, matters of degree, 
from one person to another. But I think for some of us, the truth is we, we want the hit. We want the rush. We want the fix. Mm-hmm. Next question. I was molested by several predators by the time I was 13. I also had an alcoholic father and rageaholic mother. I constantly vacillate between forgiving, accepting, embracing, and anger. Is moving past the hurt a decision or a process? Well, I think in my experience, it's much more a process. I think decisions are made along the line, but I think it's a process. And I think all those feelings that were described in that question are valid and uh uh, I, I know that I, I had all of them now, you know, uh, I go to guess that that person is not 76 year old, six years old, probably not nearly as old. And so has time to catch up with me and, and we'll go through and experience those feelings and, and we'll get to the other side. I, I really think, I really think for this, we just gotta be patient and these feelings, they're legitimate. They're, they are, they are our feelings are legitimate. It's what we do with them. You know, if we act out over them with our sexual addiction, then we, you know, we need a lot of help. If we act out with our anger in some harmful way to someone else, then there's a problem. But I know for myself, I had a hard time, I had a hard time with feelings. I had a hard time with feelings. And, and feelings related to my sexual abuse. But it wasn't until I, I named the feeling, I, I owned what I was feeling, and then I, then I addressed that feeling. I got help for it, for that feeling. And, 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 and for this, what we're talking about, that help might become just having the attention of another loving person that is not sexual, not lust-based, just cares for you. So find someone older, someone who's not a lust trigger, that kind of thing. Find someone who cares for you and care for yourself. And that's another big part of it. We have to care for ourselves. I didn't care for myself. Oh, I was, I was terrible about taking care of myself, caring for myself, loving myself. Part of this is we, we love ourselves into recovery too. I hated myself and I hated myself into deeper and deeper and deeper addiction. Part of my recovery is coming to love this person God created. Not, not as God might love me, but weaker than that, not as, not as pure, not as good. But loving myself, seeing the possibility of good within me was, the, was open the channels to getting better. When I hated myself and said I was a worthless piece of crap, there was nothing good to build on. There was nothing to latch on to, 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 to give life to, you know. And so be, be kind to yourself. Amen. Yes. Um, one of the questions that came in, and it's, it was around the time you were talking about cling to the thought. So you were talking about your dark past. It says, and this was like maybe like a statement question. It says, why don't we share what it was like all that much question? I relate to exclamation marks. So I'm, I'm guessing that's what the question was about. And Jason, if you want to retype that to make it clear, that would be helpful unless you want to just share around that topic. Would you repeat it? I, I had a yeah. couple ideas, but. Yeah, it says, why don't we share what it was like all that much? I relate to. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on the venue or where, you know, where, you know, 
I, I don't hesitate at all to share the entirety of my story to a newcomer who's reaching out and wants to know what the essay is about. I tell them my entire story and I don't know what they're going to do with it. I don't know if they're going to come to the door or not. I just trust God with that. This person make an inquiry. Here it is. You know, here's what I can share. Here's my very strength and hope with my life story. Uh, but I think that uh, apart from our recovery community, I think I suspect part of it we don't share because maybe they're still, first of all, we don't. I, I think for me, I would be reluctant to share with uh, uh, just somebody out there because I didn't trust them, because I, I feel shame would be kicked in, because I'd be afraid of the reaction. I, you know, I'd have to think that God was really putting laid upon my heart to do this, you know, to make this share. There were heavy surrounding circumstances to do it. So, you know, we, uh, you know, we talk about uh, anonymity. Well, I think we must understand anonymity a lot in this program. Anonymity really is the, it's not my program, it's God's program. That's really what that's about, as I understand it. But in the realm of confidentiality and privacy, there, there's a right to privacy. And so I wouldn't share my, my dark past with someone who is not likely to help, but if it's going to be of help. And if I, if I sense that God has laid it on my heart to share it, then I'd share it. Absolutely. Okay. That was, he was confirming what I thought there. So, well, Gary, thank you so much. Um, at this time, you could have any closing thoughts or take us out with a prayer of your choosing. And then we'll give announcements on to our next speaker. Thank you for being here, sharing your story. That was a vulnerable story. I've not got to hear it in that manner. And it was it was really powerful. And I thank you for that, for giving us that gift. And like you said, you can claim to the thought because I'm sure those that heard it today are blessed from hearing it, especially the thank hope get to see where you're at now. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, everybody who listened and who shared with questions and experience. I appreciate it. And pray God's blessing on all of you. And uh, if we would just uh, join in the serenity prayer. Prayer, God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. Courage to accept the, oh, I'm messed up. <laughs> God, God, oh my, I'm a mess. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot, we cannot change. Courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference Thy will, not ours, be done. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.